This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to the weeks, ladies and gentlemen. It's fantastic to be back on Zoom. We've got special guests tonight. We've got all the crew here digitally via Zoom or whatever platform we're using. Uh, I want to introduce whoever's in front of me first off, Emmanuel Kokosharian. How are you going, sir? Hi, Jim. It's, you know, day 112 of lockdown. We've sure had is. to uh, put down two of the camels and... <laughs> No, I, I fear that I fear the boys are going to revolt for lack of rum rations, but otherwise life is good. Oh, mate, I hear that. I hear that loud and clear. Mr. Stephen Lawrence, all the way in Dubbo, how are you going? Good, Jim. Very good, mate. Good to be with you. Good to see you again. Everything well? Everything holding up your worship? Yeah, a lot on with council at the moment, but um, sort of got locked down too, so there's plenty of time to do exercise and stuff. So I've been doing a bit of that, which is good. Good. Good for you. And that's a different Stephen Lawrence from Dubbo that we're seeing all over the papers, isn't it? That's not, not no relation? Yeah, no, that guy. Yeah, he's full of it. God, <laughs> he loves himself. Say no more. Part, he? Yeah, he does. <laughs> bit of a media-savvy person himself. Felicity Graham, how are you going in the tweed? Jim, I'm excellent. And I, you know have to say I'm coming out of lockdown. Oh, lucky you. Oh, and you're in right. the LGA, ALGA. I am. Mm. So I'm going whale watching on Saturday morning. We better, that's good. We better get this episode out quick because last time we had an episode, Stephen was bragging about not being in lockdown. <laughs> or maybe it was Flick. And then as soon as we put the episode up, all of us were in lockdown. Mm. So, so yeah. We're letting the audience. Yeah, well, as soon as we have one case, we go back into lockdown. (laughs) So, yeah, we better get this out quickly. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, So, look, obviously, we're joined by guests tonight. It's a special wigs because uh, there's, you know, uh, five legal minds and one legal moron uh, on uh, today. So, I've got a little introduction that I want to give to talk about tonight's show. It's Fairfax Nationwide News and Australian News Channel versus Vola 2021. Brand new case, HCA 27, which came down on the 8th of September 2021, the day before recording this episode, but obviously not the day before publishing, as we've just discussed. Mr. Dylan Vola was sued, uh, has sued these media organisations for defamation in respect of comments posted on the Facebook page of each respective media outlet in response to articles published by those publishers. He does not claim that the original articles posted by the media outlets were defamatory of him. It is only the comments posted in response to the articles by other Facebook users that are sued on. So these proceedings raised an interesting and difficult question about whether the media outlets are liable for readers' comments. In the recent HCA decision, High Court of Australia decision, the High Court found by a majority that a person or organisation Uh, can be responsible for comments made by others on their social media posts. That is, they are effectively the publishers of other people's comments on their social media page. So we've got a lot to discuss. We're very lucky to be joined by Peter O'Brien and Stuart O'Connell of O'Brien Criminal and Civil Solicitors. Peter and Stuart are Mr. Vola's solicitors and represented him in the Supreme Court proceedings at first instance before Justice Rothman and on appeal in the New South Wales Court of Appeal. And uh, this latest appeal in front of the High Court of Australia. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us on the weeks. Thanks for having Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Weeks. Okay, fellas, why don't we start with me? And um, 
I might go to you first, Pete. And why don't we just kick remember, off? Um, Pete and Stuart, it's his worship. So just when you're addressing him and answering questions, just make sure. Occasionally, I don't choose the title. Um, the, <laughs> you know. You're in the presence of the the mayor of Dubbo. Just Dubbo. Remember that. The Dubbo region, Felicity. I don't know whether you're joking or not. Includes Wellington. Don't forget Wellington. I'm sorry. I've been listening to the ABC a lot and I hear him all too often. <laughs> all too often. His dulcet tones over the ABC radio waves. Yeah, especially lately. Okay, well, uh, why don't uh, we kick off with you, Pete? And, mate, I thought a good uh, introduction to the topic might be, firstly, to importantly explain who is Dylan Voller. Oh, well, Dylan um, is uh, 23 years of age now, but um, I met him, I met him probably when he was 18, and um, he was at that stage in a, in a adult uh, jail in, in, in Darwin, and we were suing the Northern Territory Government in relation to his treatment between the ages of 11 and 18 at the Dondale Detention Centre. He'd spent most of his uh, childhood, so from from 10 years of age, he'd been in the Northern Territory Correctional Services facilities of the of the or the juvenile version of that in in the Northern Territory, um, and had spent well almost all of those years in and out of uh, juvenile detention, and in particular in the Alice Springs and. Uh, Darwin uh, juvenile detention facilities, but notoriously within Dondale, and Dondale det- uh, the Dondale detention centre, which uh, was um, uh, d- recommendation number one, was that that place should be torn down and uh, and not in operation. It is still in operation to this day, but there'd been some horrendous experiences by him. One thing about uh, Dylan was that he. Had the he was extremely vocal about his tr- mistreatment. He'd had a pretty tough childhood until ten, and then from ten to eighteen, he was in the custody of, largely in the custody of either the state in the community or the state in uh, correctional institutions, and it had been an appalling um, and and ongoing torment for him in terms of the punishment meted out to him when he spoke up and the way that he was dealt with when he acted out. And um, the boy in the hood was only one example of the many and various ways in which he was uh, dealt with by the juvenile justice system within the Northern Territory. So he was a very seriously and badly affected youth um, by the institutions of the Northern Territory Juvenile Justice Mm. um, Institution. Um, I'm sure we'll probably talk about this, but it sort of struck me in sort of following his case over the years and I guess his progression as a person in the public eye that the degree of the vitriol that has been aimed at him seems to be um, in direct proportion to how outspoken he's been and how political he's been. Well, he was uh, he was outspoken as a detainee. As a kid at 10, 11, he was complaining to anyone who would listen Lawyers, magistrates, judges, the ombudsman, the children's commissioner, police officers. Um, he complained to everyone. He had a, 
an unreal sense, an incredible sense in that way of, um, of injustice and mistreatment. And so whilst other kids might have been treated so badly and he'd been, he, he didn't have the greatest of upbringings, he had a, love, a mum and sister who loved him dearly, but he didn't have the greatest of upbringings, and, but he was still able to see when he was treated wrongly and how poorly it was to be able to express it. He, and that was an amazing uh, attribute for him and it lent so much to others because it meant that others could speak out and say, yeah, that's also happening to me without necessarily knowing for them it was wrong. That might have been the way things just were handed to them all the time. But for him, he got it and he understood it and he spoke out and that was very uncommon in the juvenile justice system in the Northern Territory. It made him a target but um, importantly, it also documented for years and years and years and catalogued the abuse that, uh, that was meted out upon him. So we had this um, uh, incredible series of uh, video uh, through CCTV um, uh, camera recordings of what had happened him, to him in, in, over about seven or eight years in passage, just ass uh, assaults after assaults, abuse after abuse, um, instances of batteries, abuse, uh, uh, we, we, uh, false imprisonments, wrongful imprisonments. In other words, he was a detainee, but he'd been restrained in an environment which was even, even unlawful within the lawful custodial environment. And we had it, so we were suing the Northern Territory when the, Australia, when, uh, when the ABC uh, came and started uh, f following uh, those proceedings and then realised the catalogue of errors which led to a broadcast of that, which then led to the Northern Territory Royal Commission. But it was primarily because of Dylan's fortitude and his ability to say, look, this is not right what's happening to me, and he'd speak to his lawyers, who then came to us in, in Sydney and said, can we do something about it? He spoke to magistrates, he spoke out in court, he spoke to police, he spoke to the Children's Commissioner. He was a... He, he was a real, um, he was an activist for children in custody as a child. Wow. Interesting. It, it was, could, could I just jump in there and say that it, it's those attributes of Dylan that led to this defamation case uh, because he, he was looking at, you know, all the social media uh, out there in relation to the reporting on him and he'd ring us up and he'd say, can you, you look at this, they're saying this about me on social media, that's not true. Uh, and the things they were saying uh, were, you know, extremely damaging. Um, I, I, you know, I ended up trawling through literally thousands uh, of comments in in relation to Dylan, sparked by him telling me, "Have a look, you know, have a look at this article, have a look at these comments." And you had extreme racism, you had extreme abuse, and then you had the ones which we ended up. Yeah, deciding were, were, were defamatory, where there were allegations of extremely serious crimes, none of which Dylan had, had ever committed. Um, and funnily enough, when I was when I was doing that process, when Dylan had been contacting me and say and saying, you know, look at look at this Facebook page, look at these comments or whatever. Uh, around that same time, my sister and I uh, got involved in an argument with uh, my dad. 
because I was up in Darwin. We were working on the Royal Commission and, you know, we were saying how, you know, tough a life Dylan had had and Dad was taking the line, but what about all the horrible things he's done? And I said, well, most of them are pretty minor in the in the overall scheme of things. And uh, my dad said, well, what about this particular horrible crime? I said, well, that's not true. And his response was, it's true, it's all over Facebook. So that was – that really sparked, you know, things to, to say, all right, let's do something about this. And also in the, con- in the context of the – in the context of the Royal Commission where – the, the, this, the abuse that occurred to Dylan Voller had happened over the course of both the um, Labor Party's tenure and the Liberal Party, the uh, Liberal Party up, uh, up there as well, their tenure. And so both of them had um, some serious questions to ask and we were suing at that time the, the, um, the Territory. So there was a lot of... Um, you might think, well, there was, in fact, kickback from a lot of pundits, uh, pundits from uh, both sides of politics saying, oh, you know, he's just a little uh, criminal. Um, What can you really say about it? And that was flowing into the press um, with a lot of opinion pieces. And then that was being broadcast onto these uh, pages and then people were commenting upon what was being uh, put out in the opinion press and in the press generally. So it was it was sparking um, a a discourse that was inevitably going to be piled up on him, and that's what happened, and that's what uh, these posts were all really about. They they were triggered by a, a, an amount of furor both. Some saying, you know, what had happened to him was dreadful and some saying, oh, he's, he's bunging it on and, by the way, he's not a nice person. And most of what was being said in that second secondary context was wrong, false, and people were making it up. And uh, that's what the defamation was triggered from. And, Pete, I think it's worth mentioning as well that the Royal Commission looked at the way in particular youths were dealt with in the press in the Northern Territory as an issue which um, shows the Northern Territory to be quite an outlier because in most other jurisdictions, children um, who face criminal proceedings have a protection in that they can't be identified in, res- in relation to their offending or the proceedings against them, whereas in the Northern Territory there's no such barrier. And so the police Facebook page in the Northern Territory or the, the main um, newspapers and media outlets up in the Northern Territory would routinely post stories about children, including photographs of them, including their names, and so often the pylon that happened in, in that context was happening where a child was uh, fully identified um, and, and not able um, to be shielded by the protection that all the other jurisdictions recognise is so important for children um, because they're still in that vulnerable stage and, and likely to grow out of it um, if, if given the chance. That's right. The, the, the Northern Territory news was always 
um, and remains to this day a, 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 a presentation very often. And 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 the uh, what's the newspaper down in Alice Springs called the Central um, the Centralian Advocate pictures in, in the front page is full of youth crime identifying the name, address, pictures of children committing offences or, or alleged offences, alleged uh, criminal activity posted by name and identify, identification of children. And uh, the law and order um, debates that we have in the southern states are amplified tenfold up there. Uh, within a much smaller but more virile uh, community that um, that is um, that is subject to these um, horribly populist uh, newspaper um, presentations that identify children in a very small a very small community where they can be not only identified but often known to everyone around. And so we, we had a case. Um we, we had a case after we'd started Dylan's case from the Centralian Advocate where they published a full-colour uh, front-page photograph taking up almost the whole of the front page of a 10-year-old Aboriginal boy, published his name, uh, published his age, and the photo that was taken of him was, was him behind a wire mesh fence and the story was all about kids running amok and the need for youth curfews. He'd just been out at Anzac Oval, school holidays, uh, spending time with his cousins at the uh, the youth workshop they were holding there. And the photographers come over and said, mate, stand behind that fence, let me take a photo. So let's get into a bit of discussion about the defamation case that has been travelling through the courts. Stu, can I start with you? Ordinarily, an action for defamation is based on the location of the place where the, the damage to reputation occurs. Now, that's an interesting question when it comes to online publications um, rather than, say, a poster on a wall in a particular location. And Dylan spent much of his life in the Northern Territory and out of New South Wales. So why did he file in the Supreme Court of New South Wales in relation to these Facebook comments? It's as simple as the fact that his lawyers were in New South Wales and, and these we, we, we could have sued anywhere, you know. The, these were being online. It's published all over Australia. Uh, so we, we could have chosen any forum we wanted. But we, we were based in New South Wales. That was the easiest um, for him to go to. Why Why did we go to the Supreme Court? That's just, it's as simple as that's just where everyone was going for defamation at that time. Now everyone's going to the federal court. Uh, but at that time, Supreme Court was the place to go for serious defamations and we considered this to be a very serious defamation. Mm-hmm. And so the media agencies, and we're talking here about Fairfax or the Sydney Morning Herald, Nationwide News or the Australian Newspaper and the Australian News Channel, so they're the publishers of Sky News, aren't they? Um, yeah. So witnesses for those media agencies in, in the Supreme Court accepted that the Facebook posts about Dylan were likely to provoke comments that were not favourably disposed to him and some of which would be defamatory. But that 
hasn't been the focus of the proceedings thus far yet, has it? What, what was the focus of the proceedings before Justice Rothman and and the appellate courts? So, the, well, the focus was simply on were the media companies publishers of third party comments. That that was it. They at an early stage, when the the matter was at a direct directions hearing, they said, "Well, we're not publishers. Um, we need we need to have an argument about that." Uh, so a date was set down to to argue that particular point, and on the day, uh, Justice Rothman said, "Well, we're here to argue whether they're publishers or not, but we have no." question drafted. <laughs> so a lot of that morning was spent going back and forth between the parties drafting what the question uh, uh, should be. And basically what it ended up being was whether the plaintiff has established the publication element of the cause of action of defamation against the defendants in respect of each of the Facebook comments by third-party users. Mm-hmm. So that was the that was the question. And... Was that um, approached on the basis that it was a yes or no answer? Yes, and if it if it had have been if it if it had have been uh, no, then that would have been the end of the proceedings at that point. There was an article I read recently. I can't remember who who wrote it, but um, it criticised the separate question way of dealing with things because it you know can end up in a lot of extra time and money. And I'm inclined to agree. I think in hindsight, you know, we, we perhaps could have dealt with a bit more um, at, that, at that early stage. But, you know, that, that's not to say we're not satisfied with, with where we're at. Sure. And so um, the Defamation Act doesn't define what's meant by publication. So No. We've got to turn to the common law to answer that question. Um, but some of the things that seem to be um, relevant to consider is, say, the degree of control that these media outlets have on, on comments made on their Facebook pages. Was there evidence about that before the Supreme Court? It, there was. It's interesting in that... In the Supreme Court, before Justice Rothman, our argument was more in line with what uh, Justices Edelman and Stewart in the High Court were thinking. We we, we were taking a much – as we went on, our argument became more simple. Uh, But at the beginning, we were saying that there has to be this – knowledge or control and we were saying that the evidence shows that there is but as we when we went into the court of appeal uh, our senior counsel said well none of that's necessary the law is clear it's been clear for hundreds of years all you need is evidence that the that that the person or the body intentionally lent assistance to the publication. That's all. That's all you need. You don't need to go into knowledge. You don't need to go into control. Uh, and so that's what we ran with in the court of appeal, and and we were successful. And that's what we ran with in the high court. But that's also the 
reason why some of the arguments in the High Court were so fanciful the, by, the, by the news agencies. The, the evidence on a trial had established that there was a level of, of control that could be asserted over how the functionality of uh, Facebook worked, that there was an ability to moderate um, posts. There was an ability to um, delete, but more than that, prevent uh, certain posts being being uh, being uh, published or presented on the Facebook um, pages. There was a great deal of evidence led by us through an expert um, who gave evidence as to how these how these how this platform can actually be moderated by um, by the uh, by the by the by the uh, the news outlet so that certain things are not published and so that that was the focus of the of the um, the trial if you like especially the the expert the expert evidence that was led as to how these things can be mo- how these platforms can be moderated um, so uh, the, the 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 argument as to he says became simplified, but at the early stages, we led a bit of a, a great deal of evidence that countered the argument that they had no control; they couldn't do anything. Once something was up there, it was up there, and it was going to stay there, and we, we, they had no control as to it being there. Well, that was um, put to rest at the at, uh, in front of Justice Rothman at the first instance. And Pete, the other thing that seems perhaps um, to set media agencies apart from other Facebook users or at least some other Facebook users is their desire for people to comment on their posts as a way of drawing people into their, their news outlet main website where the article is and also as a way of drawing people into their Facebook page, both of which then relate to advertising revenue. It's a no-brainer. You get someone onto your, onto, your, onto your Facebook page, you then link them into the article that then takes them to a subscription page onto their, um, onto their website and they click and subscribe. You know, that's one basic way of looking at it. There's also a whole lot of advertising revenue that's um, generated through um, those particular platforms, those social media platforms as well. But if well. more people comment so, on a yeah, post, it's, it's, then more people are likely to see it, right? Algorithm. Yeah, exactly. Because of the Facebook algorithm. Precisely, yep. yep. Can I just, before we move off this factual, this factual thing, one of the things that struck me, and we'll come to the High Court judgment in due course, but, but it, it seemed to me that the Chief Justice, Justice Keane and Justice Gleeson, um, their sort of take was that there was a level of control that was a, that was available over the comments, uh, whereas the Justice Stewart, who I think writes the more convincing of the dissents, he seems to have come to the view that there was somehow a lower level of control, and it seemed to me that even though the judgment is kind of cast in terms of high principle, there was underlying it at least a view taken by the judges about the level of control, and I just wonder whether, you know, whether that factual dispute. There was a finding by Justice Rothman, though, wasn't there, that there was a level of control? 
and and I, I and I think you're spot on, Emmanuel. I think even though their honours in the in the High Court didn't make any final findings um, of fact, they did. There is that undercurrent in a, a number of the judgments that suggests, uh, you know, that they thought that there was an element of control. And in relation to what is what have been widely reported as the two dissenting judgments, I, I didn't really read them as dissenting judgments. They, they're, they're, they're more, I would describe them more as qualifying judgments in that everyone seems to come to the same conclusion that the media companies can be, at the least, can be pub- considered publishers of third-party comments. Um, what the five judges says said was that relates to any comment on their Facebook page. What uh, Justice Stewart said was it doesn't relate to all comments. He said it only relates to those procured, provoked or conduced by the posts that the media company media companies made and Justice Edelman said similar, he said it doesn't apply to all comments, it only applies to those comments that have a connection to the subject matter posted by the media companies that is more than remote or tenuous. So there was no real... And so he gives that example of the, let's say a media organisation puts up an article about weather patterns and then someone comments on that in a completely unrelated way, in a defamatory way, to say that someone's a thief. It's just completely off topic. That's right. It's not at all induced or connected to the original article that's posted. That's right. Can you really say that the media organisation is a publisher in that situation? And and when we ran the case at first instance, our, our arguments were more you know, in line with those judgments in that we were saying that uh, we we weren't saying that all comments, you know, that they should be liable for any comment. We were saying that they should be liable for these particular comments because of the nature of the material that they were posting. They should have known that it would have attracted some defamatory comment. and, and and you know they had we we were saying that they should have a social responsibility to monitor their pages and and you know filter out these these comments. Ju- Justice Rothman was all over that point you you mentioned before um, in relation to you know the difference between private Facebook pages and pub and, and media. Pages, he said, the operation of a media Facebook page has little to do with freedom of speech or exchange of ideas. It's all about their own commercial interests. Um, and, and you know, he went on to say that they're not merely a conduit. They provided uh, the forum and they encouraged comment for their own commercial uh, purposes. So, uh, Jeremy Gans, who's a professor at Melbourne University, tweeted in response to the High Court of Australia tweet where they tweeted out the Vola judgment saying, summary, if someone leaves a defamatory comment as a reply to this High Court of Australia tweet, the High Court of Australia says that the High Court of Australia has published that comment. 
And then he retweeted that tweet saying, delighted to see my legal analysis of Vola has just been published by the High Court of Australia. I thought it was a really interesting take on it. As, you know, our senior counsel, our fantastic senior counsel, Peter Gray, um, he was onto this very early that the, the law has been the same for, for hundreds of years. And why would the High Court change it now? Um it's, it's a common sense law, uh, it works well, and it doesn't change just because the form of publication has changed, i.e. Facebook. I think there was a comment, wasn't there, to the effect that just because the avenues for defamatory content have been widely opened because of social media doesn't mean we should give lesser protection for people who are defamed. Absolutely. Stuart, something I thought was interesting in the in the High Court judgments was in the discussion about the requirement to prove an intentional um, assistance in order to become a publisher. There's a bit of discussion about whether that requires knowledge of the actual defamatory aspects of the statement or whether it's just enough, for example, to sell a book or to assist in publishing a newspaper without having to know the details. Was that issue of the quality of intention sort of part of Rothman's um, analysis? Rothman didn't... He didn't find that there had to be any intention. He did discuss knowledge and control in, in the context of distinguishing between a primary publisher and a secondary publisher. But he didn't go into the question of intention. The, the, it's interesting, this whole question of intention never appeared until the High Court. Uh, it was not argued at first instance by the defendants. It was not argued by them in the Court of Appeal. In the Court of Appeal, um, the defendants argued that they were akin to the supplier of paper to a newspaper uh, store or the supplier of a computer to an author. So they were saying, you know, all we've done is we've supplied the computer, in this case being the, the Facebook page, and then the author has written on it. Uh, and that's, that's all we've done. And therefore, we're not instrumental, you know, we're applying that, you know, the, the often quoted definition, intentionally lent assistance, where they say, well, we weren't intentionally lending assistance. Um, so just to use that other phrase, so were they saying that they weren't in any degree an accessory to the publication? They were saying that they weren't instrumental in the publication. Probably wouldn't go as far to say that they weren't saying they weren't in some way an accessory, but they, they were saying that they weren't instrumental. Um, and they, interestingly, in the Court of Appeal, they in fact disavowed the intention point and then I mean I have to take my hat off to them as, as far as ingenuity goes they they you know they handed the case off to uh, their senior counsel um, Neil Young who, who was very very good uh, and he obviously came up with a new argument but um, it, it was a very novel argument and it was a good try by them in that they was you know they they changed their tune in the high court and said okay yes we did play an instrumental role uh, but 
we didn't have any intention to publish and you have to have intention. That's what they were saying in the High Court. And the High Court said, well, no, you don't. Uh, it's always been – the law has always been one of strict liability uh, and there's no requirement for intention. You just have to do the act in a voluntary way. That's right. So you just have to have intention to do the act, but you don't have to have correct that broader intention. It's got all yeah, these so shades of criminal law, doesn't it, in terms of – It does, and you know, I made this oh, – sorry, go, Stevie. I was just going to say, like, you know how you have that discussion in – some of the criminal law judgments discussing the distinction between basic and specific intent where they get into offences like reckless wounding or property damage and they talk about how knowledge presupposes intent and so forth. You sort of see shades of that here where there's that discussion about, you know, is it sufficient to have intent to play a particular role in relation to publication without knowledge of the defamatory detail? Um, or substance of it. And I think they actually make the point at one point that that tort law has always had this sort of interfusion with criminal law in its in its origins, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, I was sort of really wondering about the analogies to criminal law and I made a note on the judgment about how when they were analysing these concepts of being an accessory and strict liability and so on, um, and wondering about whether there's this liability versus moral culpability distinction in torts like in criminal law. So, you know, we have in the criminal law this concept of certain conduct rendering you liable to conviction and then as as a separate question looking at your conduct as to the extent to which it makes you liable for particular punishment Um on a, on a scale of different sentencing options. Is that sort of the damages question, the moral culpability question? No, no, I think, I think no, I think we, in defamation, I think the parallel is the you, you have the strict liability in relation to publication, but then you switch over to the defences and that's your sort of moral culpability equivalent because, the you know, you look at the defences, for example, innocent dissemination and so, so yes, strictly... You did uh, play a part in the publication, but you didn't know what it was, uh, and you you know you were only a secondary publisher. So, for example, the you know the news agent who sells the magazine with a defamatory article in it. So, so that means that the defendant um, avoids liability altogether. It, is there an equivalent in terms of you're liable, but your your degree of culpability is more or lesser and that bears out in damages? Like let's say... Maybe Peter might, Peter might be best place to answer that one. Well, it's an intentional tort. It's the same as false imprisonment, malicious prosecution, assault, battery. The, 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 it's a wrongdoing um, by the tort visa. So... Um, once you've established it, they're not all offensive of a strict liability, but they do to some extent reverse the onus. And similar in defamation, that if you that once that once the I mean, the issue of publication in terms of strict liability and intention, it, it just flows from that. If, if you've published it, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have intended to 
have it on your um, publication, if it's there, it is there. That is that is it, and that's essentially what. I think. I think. I think. Uh, I think what Felicity was getting at, Peter, was in criminal law, you you can be found guilty of an offence, but then there can be mitigation, um, reduction of moral well, that, culpability. Those matters go to damages. Yeah, those matters. Yeah, go that's to, what I was saying. To damages only. And um, and and uh, and so the, the the establishment of the the, the tort um, doesn't require an assessment of that. That's just an assessment of liability. And so once 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 liability is established, um, you know, absent the um, the defences that might be available to um, the tort feeser, then it, it, then we, we we go on to discuss um, damages, and those questions come into um, you know the gravamen or or the seriousness of the of the um, of the the wrongdoing. So, is there damages for for mere? Sorry, is there damages for the mere conduct? That is to say, I, I, you know, obviously you can prove further damages, but say with an assault, you might just get a sum for the bare fact of the assault. Is it like that for defo, or do you have to prove some actual? Well, obviously. Yeah, the, the, the injury to your reputation is uh, how, how serious was it? Um, it will be more serious for one person to another depending on their background and circumstances. Similarly, it will be different depending on what was published. So th- that's, that's the measure of, of how um, uh, the reputation has been damaged by the, public, by, by the publication of the defamatory material. Um, so yeah, it 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 varies from case to case, case to case. But the liability is um is a, is a, is totally different to the gravamen. There's no issue in terms of um the intentionality of it. So Manny, I might throw to you to kick off the discussion in more depth about the high court. Yeah, I mean we've we've kind of we've kind of slipped into that already, which is nice. But one of the was there anything. In terms of the special leave application for for this, was there anything interesting that happened in the course of that? Was there? Um, did you expect there to be a special leave application? Was it was it always going to go up to the high court? The only the only there there was, there was an interesting aspect of the, um, the the high court obviously knew that this was a matter that needed to be ventilated at some stage or another, and so there was a there was a particular. Um, Requirement in terms of the leave application, or uh, better expressed as a, an an order in terms of leave being granted. Leave was granted on the basis that um, that the defendants wouldn't be uh, sorry, the respondent. We would not be liable for any costs on this on on the leave application, nor on the. Uh, ventilation of the argument and the appeal. So um, th- there was no cost to be borne by the respondent, that, that was us, on the appeal, which really indicated to us that the, this was not, um, bear in mind, um, Dylan Voller had won at first instance, he'd won an appeal, and now we're in the uh, asking for special leave. There was no real... Um, it didn't appear to us that there was any real um, 
controversy except for the public interest in having this issue properly ventilated. It was going to be one that needed to be fleshed out. It had to be dealt with by the High Court. There was a lot of media entities who were wanting to know what their position would be. And so the High Court said, okay, we will grant you uh, leave, but Dylan Voller shouldn't have to pay um, in the event that uh, we have to argue this in front of a full court and and uh, and it turns out you're, you're right to the media companies. So the, the, the cost position was, res, uh, was retained as it was um, in the event that the media companies were successful. It was an, that was an interesting um, take on it because obviously the, the High Court thought this was a, uh, an issue of some significant public, public, significant public interest and policy. So was that order a concession to the fact that there'd been the fragmentation of the trial proceedings? And they effectively just thought that it was kind of oppressive for him to be in any other situation than not liable to costs. Well, no, I don't. I don't believe it to be that to be the reason. Although the reason wasn't expressed, so I, I don't know. But I thought it was more to to the fact that this was a matter of significant public interest, and therefore, and um, the cost position to that stage should be should remain as is. The the special leave application. Um, wasn't um, ventilated any more, in my view, than to say, okay, well, this is a matter of great public interest. It should be dealt with by the full court. But so did you get your costs because you won or was it just parties bear their own costs? No, we got our costs because we won, but we'd won to that, to that point. And, uh, and the uh, High Court said, well, special leave will be granted, but only on the basis that if the appellant were to win, they would not get their costs um, and the costs. Yeah, but uh, it's, I don't know that it's common in defamation or the proceedings of this type. No, it's not common in these sort of... No, it's, it's not common, but I, th- I think it was a, a recognition from the court that you had media, you know, several media companies with all their resources up against Dylan Voller you know, as a single young individual. Um, but can I, I can I just add that not all media companies were keen for this matter to uh, be argued in the High Court. When, when we were in the Court of Appeal, Bauer Media attempted to intervene and they had senior counsel come in and do their intervention application and Bauer Media's senior counsel said the primary judge, Justice Rothman, had not erred uh, at all and and the question as to whether the media companies had published the third-party comments was a no-brainer. And that, com- th- that comment was repeated in the Court of Appeal judgment uh, by their honours. Uh, so... Not all media companies agreed that this was a good idea and and that uh, particular senior counsel and Bauer Media will be looking at this decision and, and thinking, you idiots, uh, you, you know, why, why did you do this? Now you've, you, you know, you've stuffed it for all of us. Um, so that was interesting. They, were, they weren't allowed to intervene in the uh, Court of Appeal because they said that 
you know, we, we concede the we concede the publication point, but we want to run other defences. Uh, and the Court of Appeals said, well, you know, this is not the forum to do that. We're just dealing with this particular question. One, one of the things that struck me about the High Court decision, and Gaidler and Gordon, Justice Gaidler and Gordon say this at 98 of the judgment, um, they, they talk about how the internet has multiplied threats against reputation and how def- defamation law shouldn't be diminished because of the threats and, in fact, suggesting in, implicitly that there's a greater need or at least an ongoing need to provide the protections in light of these greater threats. But how much of the discussion in the High Court argument was actually just, you know, sort of on that issue? Like, the internet has changed this and we need to change um, how we what we're doing? Was there any sort of discussion about that or was it really these kind of heavy legal points that the, the judgments read like or at least the majority reads like? There was virtually no discussion of those particular policy issues. It, it was purely on the law, um, which, we, which we found interesting because as, as Peter said, we, we thought that they granted special leave because – you know, they thought this was an important issue, perhaps from a public policy perspective, but that that really wasn't um, what the focus was during the the uh, high court proceedings. The focus was on what is the correct interpretation of the law in relation to publication. And in fact, they draw on some really old cases, don't they? Like all these funny old cases about booksellers being prosecuted for libel and the person that screws the cap on the printing machine who for some reason got sued in it's the 19th century. Yeah, if you think, that's right, if you think about Edelman in particular, Edelman's, Justice Edelman's, I'll call it a dissent for lack of a better word, but his description of what the majority's, the effect of the majority's judgment is, is that effectively what Jeremy Gans is saying, that if you put a tweet out under the High Court of Australia, Twitter, you're they're publishing it for you. And that is a pretty... I mean, leaving aside the specific circumstances of this case, that's a pretty heavy onus for everyone to bear. And I don't know whether or not that's actually what the High Court is saying and whether or not it's actually going to have that effect. But um, I'm certainly a little bit worried about people posting on my social media now in a way that I probably wasn't before this po- uh, before this judgment. I think anyone who... Anyone who has anyone who creates a forum that encourages members of the public to comment, I think, does now have some re- well, always did, but now now with, with the stamp of the High Court, has some social responsibility to ensure that if they post something where they know, I think this is the key, if they post something where they know that there might be defamatory comment about a particular person or persons, then then they have a social responsibility to monitor that. But if you're just the average Joe on your private Facebook page putting in a post about how your cat ate Nutrigrain for breakfast, uh then I don't think there's any responsibility on you whatsoever. And if someone comes along and puts some defamatory comment on your, you know, under your post, 
you you should be. But protected. if you leave it there, would that continue to be the case? This this wasn't really, on my understanding of it, dealt with. But they sort of dealt with publication as if it occurs once at a particular point in time. But I was kind of thinking about a situation where you put up your post about your cat eating nutrigrain and then someone makes a defamatory statement on it. You then log off, you come back, you leave it there. It's there for days or weeks. You know that it's there. Isn't there then a republication or is that inconsistent with this decision? Well, that well, that, that, no, that's a different, that, that's a different, uh, context that in in the High Court there was a lot of discussion about um, what's called the Byrne and Dean uh, type cases, which is you know where where you have a notice board for example and someone comes and posts something on there, well you can't be held liable as a publisher because you didn't know they put it on there, but once you become aware of it, well then then you become liable if you don't remove it. So the person who does the Facebook post about the cat sees the defamatory comment and does nothing about it, well, then you then you are potentially liable. Uh, you become the publisher. You become the publisher. That's right. Yeah. So we're, we're, the, the thing, how people should... Do you become the publisher or were you always the publisher but you're not liable until you know about it and fail to remove it? I would say that you become the publisher. I, w- I wouldn't say you you were liable before that before you had. That's that, this not- distinction, isn't it, between these this notion that you are the publisher but you're an innocent um, disseminator, versus someone who wasn't a publisher until they become a publisher. That's right, and and that's one thing that I think is very important to get across to everyone is that this high court decision is half a decision, if you like. It's there's two parts to defamation. The first part is uh, have you have you published something? That's the first part. The second part is uh, are there any defences available? Now all the High Court has done in this ma- in this particular matter has answered the first part of that question, as in are you a publisher? But it hasn't gone on to consider all of the possible defences. So this will go back to the Supreme Court for the case to continue. Correct. It's worth noting. And, and we'll probably end up in the High Court again. On a second <laughs> question wood. about innocent dissemination. <laughs> On a second, that's right. <laughs> Justice Stewart's answer to the question in his quote-unquote dissent was the respondent will establish the publication element of the cause of action of defamation in relation to those third-party comments which had been procured, provoked, or conduct or conduced by posts made by the appellants. So Justice Stewart was was sort of distinguishing him, himself from what the what the majority had said by focusing on the article being the thing that leads to the publication. And Edelman's dissent is in the same vein. It's like it's not anything you have to invite it, but it seems what the majority says is doesn't matter whether or not you invite it. If it's on your page, that's the ball game. And one of the examples that Edelman gives is, well, if you're a TV, if you're sort of videoing live on television and someone walks past with a T-shirt on it that has something defamatory written, are you really the publisher of what that of what's on that guy's T-shirt? And that's, I mean, that's an interesting question. And so on the majority or plurality majority 
analysis, you would be a publisher, but you would be an innocent disseminator. Well, you may be an innocent disseminator. And you may right. be you may be a publisher too, because the majority the plurality did seem to turn on some analysis of the nature of the page, its its sort of commercial nature, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It wasn't totally devoid of that. Encouraging, encouraging comments. comments. That's right. I, facilitating, I think, com- facilitating comments, etc. I think the the t shirt one, if if you know, if someone ever sued a media company on that t shirt one, they, they would take it all the way to the High Court and the High Court would probably distinguish it. Um, is is my view. Uh, th- that th- this decision has to be confined um you know, to the context in, in which it came up, and that is a media company using a public Facebook page. Now, yes, that may extend to uh, to people who are not media companies but who are running public Facebook pages, but I don't think it extends to someone using a private Facebook page. I think different media platforms would, could be dealt with differently depending on the way in which people can respond and the way in which the responses can be moderated. And I think that's very different in Twitter as it might be for for Facebook. But again, the evidence was only, as Stewie said, connected with uh, the way in which uh, Facebook um, operators could moderate. I mean, I, I think that's I think it's certainly arguable. And, and one of the things, I mean, I guess what, I expected from this judgment when I first heard that this matter was going to the High Court was something that perhaps wasn't going to be that fact-dependent um, and might give some broader guidance. But I think you're right that it's really hard to say more broadly than the specific example that's here what, what the effect of it's going to be. I think we can say that there have, there have been some legislative changes that bear upon how this, might, this kind of scenario might actually um, pan out now and into the future because the amendments that came into force on the 1st of July under the Defamation Amendment Act and which were part of a sort of national um, implementation of amendments include that you can't sue and or can't commence defamation proceedings unless you've given the proposed defendant a concerns notice in relation to the matter. So you've got to directly put them on notice. You know, there are these defamatory things that I say are on your Facebook page by way of third-party comments. This is what they are. Um, You know, this is where you can find them and give them an opportunity to take them down. And only if they don't take them down can you then take any further steps in terms of litigation. So I think that that goes some way to kind of dealing with this issue of either a person who's not aware that their page has defamatory content posted on it because they're not monitoring it or they're not regular users and also deals with the situation where you know, a person sees a comment but doesn't necessarily appreciate the defamatory nature of it because they just don't know if it's the truth or not or whatever and brings to their attention the 
the perspective of the aggrieved person so that they then have an opportunity to think, okay, yeah, I should take that down or, or not and face the consequences. I think that I think that's right. Um, I think the thing the media companies are worried about is that you might find these you, you might find defamatory comments that have been so you, so you have 12 months to initiate a, a defamation action you might find comments that have been on their facebook page for say 10 months and then send off a concerns notice so even though they take them down you could still sue them for the whole time that they were up yeah that's that's the important point which is that the concerns notice doesn't get rid of the liability. Um, it just gives them an opportunity to, one, take it down and, two, make an offer to make amends. So there's, the liability persists. So just to mitigate the damage. And, yeah. And limit the damages. Yeah. The other change is this serious harm element, which does kind of elevate things, I think, in terms of the nature of the communication. So you can't... Oh, sorry, it's, it's an element of a cause of action for defamation that the publication of defamatory matter about a person has caused or is likely to cause serious harm to the reputation of the person. Um, that's new, isn't it, Stu? It, well, it's new here. Uh, it's been around in the United Kingdom for a long time. So we, yeah. so, so we thankfully, we have decisions from the UK that gives some guidance to how, how that should be implement, implemented, but it hasn't been tested in Australia as yet. Um, I, I don't think it changes things too much. It really just says that you, you know, if you're a plaintiff, you have to provide some evidence um, to the court that you have suffered serious harm. Uh, there's no guidance as to what that evidence should be, but in defamation, there, there's really only, you know, th there, there's three main areas to look at, and that is uh, what kind of reputation did you have before the defamation? Uh, so, you know, if you're the mayor of Dubbo, you've obviously got a much, you know, better reputation than uh, someone who's, you know, a bus driver or something. Uh, there's that. Then there is how many people... Thousands of bus drivers are going to complain about this, I think. Not in Dubbo, they won't. They love, they love the mayor of Dubbo. Um, and and they, they realise the extent of his, his reputation. Uh, the, the second thing is what were the, what was the actual definition? All bus drivers. <laughs> The second thing is what was, what was the actual defamation? So you know how bad were, were the words themselves? And the third thing is uh, how many people read it? What, what what was the audience? And then on top of that, you know you can you can just have evidence of you know the any financial loss or any you know particular mental distress that that the publication caused. And they, they, that's already being done before they brought in this. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure what it's going to weed out, but I am sure that it is going to prolong proceedings. 
Because presumably people who are plaintiffs in defamation proceedings are trying to prove as serious harm as they can on the evidence to maximise their damages. So having a serious harm threshold, I mean, sure, it might weed out some cases and perhaps particularly cases in the social media context where people are just kind of um, typing without thinking. Yeah. I, it, we just have to wait and see how, how it works here in practice. I mean, it's interesting. Like you think about a social media post done by, you know, young people about someone alleging that they're a rapist, say. That might – that on the face of it seems like it would cause serious harm if you caused, you know, your 20 closest friends to think that you're a rapist um, or something like that. So there's a lot of things that would – to my mind at least, to my sort of unschooled mind, would amount to serious harm that are regularly happening on social media. Do you think there's a practical issue here about the platform in terms of, like, should Facebook be... And I know I suspect some aspects of the functionality might have changed since the beginning of the case, but, for example, should they be moving to a system where you make a comment and it doesn't actually get posted until a moderator approves it? Like, would that be a practical answer to this sort of quandary for news organisations who want to use the platform but also want to comply with defamation law? Well, there is a there is a defence um, to these or to Facebook and other um, providers of internet um, social media platforms in the um, in Commonwealth legislation such that they're not liable for a potential defence net, not yet tested. In fact, it was tried to be tested in relation to this matter by the Bauer Media Organisation that Shuri referred to earlier in the Court of Appeal, where they tried to intervene and say, well, they did publish, but there's this Commonwealth uh, defence. Now, so um, they're not going to be inclined to get involved in moderating uh, comments at all on various users' Facebook or other accounts um, because of this um, indemnity that they have. Um, so whether that whether that should happen or shouldn't happen, uh, at the moment it seems to be the Australian government's intent that that will not at this stage occur or, or even be contemplated while the legislation um, is as it is at a Commonwealth level. I, th- I think that would, um, Steve, that, that would be a good solution though for, for media companies. That, when you said, you, you said things have changed, yes, they have now um, media companies on their public Facebook pages, they can switch off comments completely before – um, Vola, they couldn't do that. They had to use... Stories involving me in the Dubbo media, they often have the comments switched off. That's right. So they can do that. And, and look, I think that's that's a good option for them to have if they if they know that, the, you know, publishing something about the mayor of Dubbo is going to incite defamatory comment, then why not switch it off and protect yourself? But if they had the option of, instead of switching it off... Um, Hide, automatically hiding all comments and then publishing the ones that they wanted uh, to publish, um, 
that would be a good option. They, they, in effect, they do have that option now, and that is the workaround that our expert gave evidence of at first instance. That is, you put in a whole lot of um, uh, words in a profanity filter, so it's meant to filter out profanity, but you put in words like and and the um, and but and you know anything that you can think of. And that has the effect of hiding any comment with those words in it, and then you can choose to unhide um, as you go along. They can still be seen by friends of that person, can't they? That's right. That's right. So, so that kind of limits the pool of publication. Limits the pool of publication, that's right. Well, that was fantastic. It's great to be joined by Peter and Stuart. What an enlightening conversation that was. Thank you, Wiggs. And we've said goodbye to Peter and uh, and Stuart. Time for fun things. In the same order that we did our introductions to the show, Mr. Emmanuel Kokosherian, can you please tell us what your fun thing is in lockdown? So, look, I'm I'm really excited. This is kind of a worky fun thing, but... um I'm moving into a new room in Chambers. Um, I'm giving up my balcony suite, which I've enjoyed for a long time, and I'm definitely going to miss the balcony, mm-hmm. but I'm moving uh, downstairs into a new room. There's been a bit of a reshuffle at Chambers because Hamid Danji's just been appointed a Supreme Court Justice, which is excellent news. Um, and so my fun thing is planning how I'm going to do up my new room and move into it. Exciting. So you're, you've, been have that, you've had access to your Chambers. I've heard some barristers have been going back. Well, I mean, I've I've had court physical court appearances in in the sense I've been lucky enough to have physical court appearances to get me out of the house. Okay, oh, that's fun. Good for you. Wow, finally a fun thing to hear of, Mr. Stephen Lawrence yeah. in Dubbo. What's happening? That's fun, mate. I've sort of entered into this alternative reality of just um, day in day out, kind of dealing with this Delta outbreak in terms of my mayoral responsibilities which is sort of every day. So it's sort of like for the last three and a half weeks, there hasn't really been any discernible weekend or anything like that. So you're like Dubbo's Gladys, are you? Yeah, sort of like in a mini kind of non-completely crazy way like she's going through. Right. um, Mate, on the fun things front, I've been going for lots of bike rides, including with my son Damien and getting attacked by magpies, which I then publicised on Facebook and then I was contacted by a media outlet here who said, look, can you go down and ride your bike in the particular place where the really crazy one is so we can take a photo of it attacking you for the paper? And being a politician, a local politician, I, of course, agreed to that. Took four <laughs> yeah. I knew I'm here right now. I never thought, I thought you'd ask already, and here I am. So ready when you are, sir. <laughs> so when that's published, I'll make sure I share it on the Wigs Facebook page. That'd be great. Did, did the magpie attack you? <laughs> yeah, it's a great photo. So it's me riding, standing up on my bike. The magpie's got like its two wings pointed towards the ground and it's a foot from my head and I've got this idiotic grin on my face. This <laughs> <laughs> magpie needs an agent. That, that's right. That's right. That's the photo. That'll be your photo. That'll be your obituary photo, I reckon, yeah. you know. Like that'll be like Stephen Lawrence and then that photo. Uh, Felicity Graham, how are you going? What's the fun thing? So many fun things, but one that's coming up is I'm going to be judging a moot. Oh. Um, yeah. The Baker McKenzie women's moot. Cool. And I think it's going to be looking at that case. I don't know if we've talked about it on the episode or not yet, but you know that case that looked at 
the employment consequences for a woman who was using Twitter under an anonymous Twitter handle, but mm. she was a Commonwealth bureaucrat. We will get I, to do it. I remember. We it in the end. We should do it, though. Yeah, we should do it. You know who did it? I don't want to plug another podcast, but the uh, what's the one that's our rival? Law Report. The Law Report. They did it. They did it. Yeah. They interviewed her. She was yeah, literally was trolling her boss, like her Sorry, immediate Manny. boss. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I knew that. Yeah. Sorry, Flick. Take it away. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to be judging, judging a moot. So listening to some very interesting constitutional law issues, administrative law issues. Is it on Zoom? It's going to be on Zoom. Okay. Is there a panel of judges or are you the sole judge? I don't know. Yeah. I think there are some rounds and then a finale. So I don't know. I think I'm I think I'm a single judge. It's great. Remember when we had this grand idea to do a wigs moot? Hmm. That was that way. in the in that idea, isn't it? Uh, yeah, COVID yeah. killed that idea. I guess we'll have to wait. COVID, COVID killed it. We yeah. need to. We need COVID to end so that we can pack out Banco. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. Killed yeah, out yeah. public shows it. too. Yeah, we were going to do some live ones. That would have been great. Oh, you guys did do a live one. Oh yeah. Yeah. Also, with the other. Yeah. With, yeah. with the other. Um, she was good too, oh, wasn't she? Yeah, I heard she was great. <laughs> yeah, I heard she was real she's, good. She's tops. Hey, Bring so shout um, out to Natasha Robinson. Yeah, I could. Our um, other host. I can. I can always delete this. That's the power of the host as well. I can uh, go in and edit out. It'll be like. It'll be like. So next question from Felicity, and it'll just be fifteen <laughs> minutes of silence, and then Peter's answer, and I can just do that all the way through. So I just want you guys to know that in the back of your heads when we do future Wigs episodes, just so everyone's on the same page. No one's laughing. It's a joke. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm joking, everyone. <laughs> Grief. Manny, come on, back me up here. I, I, I just, I, I love this controversy sells podcast. Let's right? do it. Let's get, let's get, yeah. let's get, bring the rivals on. All right, Weeks, thank you so much for your time tonight. It was great. It was really good. Really appreciate it. Everyone's awesome. We lockdown's over one day, hopefully October. I don't know. God willing. Thanks, Jim. Thank you to all. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Manny. Thanks, Thanks Jim. Thanks, guys. for listening please like the wigs on facebook at the wigs podcast don't forget to rate and review on itunes this podcast was brought to you by minimal productions produced by jim mitt